Welcome, Sam. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Got a lot of different things I want to chat with you about today. Looking forward to the conversation a lot. I want to like maybe just start like stepping kind of way back a little bit and sort of asking you some questions that are sort of more broadly about sort of crypto's impact on the world and sort of, I think, sort of bigger questions about sort of, as I like to say, sort of why bother? And I had, um, I remember in college, a professor who used to always, he'd always ask like, why bother? Why are you doing what you're doing? What, what, what actually matters, et cetera. And I think when people look at, at what's going on with crypto, like there's very simplistic things that people can see. And obviously, you know, you've talked a lot about effective altruism and, and sort of that, that kind of long game from a value creation perspective and, and impact on the world. But like, like really specifically, when you sort of think about like, why bother? Like, why are you working on what you're working on? I'd love to hear, you know, just some high level thoughts on that. You know, what makes this so significant as a, as a problem space to be working? In? I think there's, there's sort of a lot of angles of that. You know, maybe you'll start just from the like market structure part of this, which I think is, is underrated and, and really influential, which is that like crypto generally has a fairly direct market structure where everyone has equitable access. It sort of is what it is. You compare that to equities market structure where you go through 10 different intermediaries. Typical consumer can't even see the order book they're trading on unless they're paying tens of millions of dollars a year. It's an insane setup. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the direct equitable access of the crypto industry and for what that can sort of help inform and contribute to other, you know, other financial products. So I'm like really excited to work on that market structure piece of it and hopefully help help bring uh, what I think is a more appropriate market structure to consumers. And I think that's something that in one sense, it's an accident, like it's just like crypto is newer, so it gets to start from scratch and, and think about things again. But from another perspective, you know, when you talk about custody and clearing and things like that, what does it mean to, to clear or custody a stock? It's not, there's no thing exactly that you're custody. It's all just sort of convention. And yeah, totally. it makes that process pretty messy, right? Like who is the arbiter of whether someone holds a stock? I don't know, right? And you have to create a lot of, of infrastructure to even answer that question. The fact that you can actually answer the question of who owns this Bitcoin, who owns this USDC, right, means that all of a sudden you don't need to have this like special clearing and custody firm type object exactly, right? It's just like who is custody? Well, you can look on the fucking blockchain and it says, right? And, and so like, I think that clears up part of the mess. And so I do think that the you know the fact that it's happening on blockchain rails actually does help this to some extent and that you don't need a ton of intermediaries to to you know facilitate a transfer of an asset from one venue to another in crypto you can just do it directly yeah so i just like maybe pushing on that a little bit like sort of i'll ask the question again like well why does that matter like why does it matter that there's direct access to capital markets aside from like make, making it more fair and equitable to participate in markets, like so more, more open, accessible markets. Like, well, why does that matter? Like, why do markets matter at all? And why do we, are we so passionate about this, you know, solving this market structure issue? Like, what is that going to do for society and improve the I world? think I almost want to start with prediction markets in a sense. So what are prediction markets? I think they're a really cool idea, although we haven't seen them implemented, I think, yet in, in a way that, that takes off. But it's this idea of like, if you want to, figure out if something's going to happen in the world, you could create a market for it, right? If you want to figure out what the temperature is going to be in five years, right? You create a market for it. People can trade on that market. And then you have market forces, which 
can come to a conclusion about you know what is the market price of the temperature five years from now. And now if you are anything from researching global warming and trying to understand the impact to your models to working at a business that depends on temperature, you know, whether it's in the energy sector, whether you're thinking about the impact on crops or anything else, you can now get a consensus answer from that and it can help inform you. And that's just another way of saying, you know, it's sort of a way to get the wisdom of the crowds combined with, you know, making people put their money where their mouth is so that if someone's just totally full of shit and wrong about all their predictions, they cease to be an important market participant, right, pretty quickly. And so then you rewind and say, well, what do markets do nowadays? They do that for different assets, right? And so like, if you want to know, if you want to buy oil, first of all, it's important that you have a lot of liquidity to access that you don't get totally ripped off on your, or if you're buying corn, right? Uh, you're a supermarket, like you don't want to like pay five times as much as is fair, but who knows what fair is? Well, there's a market, right? And also if you're doing financial planning as any sort of entity or business, right? And you want to know like, well, all right, you know, we're going to be selling some corn. What should we think of pricing at? How is that going to flow through to our financials? You can look at financial products on it and sort of answer that, right? You look at, then you look at companies, right? Like why does the stock market matter for them? Well, investors have to figure out how much capital it makes sense to allocate to them, right? How much it, it makes sense to be investing in their business so that they can help grow it out. And if their business is like twiddling thumbs and, and we somehow end up in a world where, where twiddling thumbs is, gets like $3 trillion of our assets, it's going to be a lot of thumb twiddling. And that, that, that's a pretty big waste for the world, right? Like we need some way to say like, no, that. We want to avoid thumb twiddling. Exactly. That's a good why bother. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think like part of what you're getting at here is markets and information, right? They're sort of like two sides of the same coin right? At the end of the day, markets produce information and they seek to have the best information. And that's because it, it has value. <laughs> that, that information is extraordinarily valuable to some decision. And so I think part of what you're saying is crypto and blockchains have the potential to bring kind of more truth-seeking in a sense. And that truth-seeking can be incentivized so that we're, we're getting to the best truths possible and that Actors in the real in the real world and the real economy are going to be able to be you know have greater assurance and more effectiveness in in using that information exactly and so it's sort of about information and economic velocity on the planet can be enhanced by this kind of infrastructure. I think that's exactly right, and this starts to tie in as well to uh, you know you look at and this is just another side of of that same coin, and I think that sort of is the overall point about like why is money useful bartering kind of sucks an information system at the end of the day right exactly it's like you know we, there's a reason that we moved on from from bartering to to, to, to liquid <laughs> yeah. sources of, of funds and and i think this is this again this is this is another piece of that picture right money is record keeping systems and and that's just an information organization system and and it has a social convention which is really useful to participants and like there were we're sort of this is just you know a way better one because it's sort of and it's a trust, you know, trust minimized, global, uh, extremely inexpensive to interact with, and so and on. And when you start talking about money as a record keeping system, all of a sudden, it starts to make sense why a ledger is a type of thing that, like, why why is blockchain so useful for money? Well, it, you know, blockchain is a global decentralized ledger. That's exactly what you need when you're trying to do record keeping, right? Is is a ledger, and, and so and I think that's where sort of like that tying comes from. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I have a fun story, which I've shared a few times, which is I met with the CIO of the Federal Reserve some time ago, 
And I asked him, I said, you know, what, 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 like, what is the actual dollar? Like what, talk about the tech stack. Like what is, what is the dollar? And I pressed on him and he's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, like, like, is it a database? Like what kind of database is it? And so on. And Turned out the dollar is a cluster of Oracle databases running on like Sun Microsystem, like um, clusters of Sun Microsystem. Uh, okay, so the cool. dollar is a SQL database. Like, okay, that's interesting, right? And so I, I sort of jokingly asked, it's like, so when you guys like go and like buy $30 billion of mortgage-backed securities with quantitative easing, is that like a SQL insert statement? And then you have the 30 billion and then you go get the bonds? And it effectively it is, right? So like QE is just SQL insert statements in this cluster of Oracle databases. But at the end of the day, it's like whose record keeping system are you dependent on and, and whose record keeping system do you trust and what's available most broadly to the most people on the planet to kind of interact with and use yeah. in many respects. So I guess like I want to ladder off this kind of question a little bit. And, and this gets, you know, starts to get towards some of the, like the, the higher order, like policy discussions that are going on right now, which I know you're involved in and, and we are too, but like, there's sort of a view that, you know, the, I think the, like the traditional view of this whole space has been like, this is, you know, these speculative assets and all this sort of stuff, right? So we can put that aside for a moment, but there's another view, which builds on a little bit of what we were just talking about, which is that actually what's, this is actually like the next generation of economic infrastructure for the planet. Like this is actually an infrastructure that like it provides like a new substrate for the organization of economic activity. And when you think about it in, in, in that lens, it takes on a whole new perspective for people. And I think from a policy perspective, like it's like, wait a minute, we're not just talking about like, do we want to regulate whether people can trade Bitcoin or do we want or, or stable coins or whatever it is, right? It, it's sort of, this is actually a, a, like a strategic infrastructure that's being worked on, that's being kind of worked on collectively all around the world. And like, what is this and what impact is it going to have? And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about this whole space, crypto, crypto infrastructure itself, the kind of market structure stuff that's happening on top of it as economic infrastructure. It's like new economic infrastructure. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's talk about like, I don't know, a remittance or it could be a social media message. I think the same story is going to work for both of them, which is sort of interesting, right? But let's maybe do a remittance to start. You're trying to send money from someone in America to someone in Brazil, say, right? And this sort of gets back to your question pretty quickly to the Federal Reserve of what is a dollar, right? You're trying to send a dollar from one to the other. What What is this thing you're trying to send exactly, right? Like, what do you mean a dollar, or is it a Brazilian real? What, what, what does that mean? But, but it gets worse because they don't talk to each other, right? Like the current system, it's, well, the dollar and the real have completely non-overlapping systems. And that, that's kind of weird. How could you send money from someone? And, and what this gets to in the end is like, if you want to have two different people communicate with each other, right? And transfer information or assets or anything like that, you sort of have like three options. You can have some private company that stores a ledger, right? So you can say like, and, and that's what we have on social media right now. Yeah, or, or that's like, you know, like PayPal exactly. or whatever. Right, and there are absolutely cases where I think that makes sense. But I, I think we've also seen a lot of cases where that causes problems in the world. And all you have to do is try and look at, you know, the reaction to the various decisions Facebook has tried to make about whether to censor content around elections, right? To see some of those pain points. So, okay, so that's one thing you can do. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense in like small, isolated instances, right? It's sort of like efficient and you can innovate quickly on it. But that's 
a very different thing from saying that like that's the answer that we can trust for everything, right? I think it sort of probably isn't that. So okay, so that's one option. If you don't want that, well, a variant is you could have it be a government, right? You could say what we're going to do is we're going to say that who controls how you know how these two systems talk to each other, how 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 I transfer database, who's got read write access to the regulated databases, basically. Exactly, yeah. and so you could say it's the government that does, and like okay, but you actually start getting some nasty questions pretty quickly around well, okay, the government, which government, right? Again, this is a transfer between someone in Brazil and someone in the United States. Which government was it again that was? controlling this transfer, we didn't really specify. Actually, that's going to be kind of a problem. And it's not obvious what the right answer should be there. And e- even if you didn't have this two-government question, right, even if there's only ever one government, which, which is not the case, I don't know, like when you're talking about like systems that are giving feedback to the government, that sometimes is, is negative. I, I think maybe there are reasons to be a little bit concerned about the government controlling those rails. I think we see some countries today where that's how it works. I think it has some some properties that many people are not a huge fan of. And what's the third answer? If it's neither of those, right? If it's not a corporation and it's not a government, something else is holding this ledger, this record. And what what's the other option? And, and I think that blockchain technology is basically the first time that we've had a plausible answer to that of like, what is a thing that's neither a corporation nor a government, but that right. can that can transmit information the internet, sorry, actually, is, is one. But yeah, yeah, the internet. I mean, the, the internet is. I mean, this is just basically like the next growth of the internet, right? I mean, in some ways, right? It's just like the next logical infrastructure layer, the next logical protocol layer of the internet. It's just taking on greater a greater role in society, right? It's just sort of continuing to upgrade that basis, right? I mean, the, the great examples of this are like in the early days of the internet, right? If you want to like have a voice phone call with someone, right? And for the most part, actually, most of those voice phone calls were actually routed through infrastructure that were government controlled in most places and actually operated by national monopolies in those governments. And the governments had backdoors to like listen in on anything that was said. And the concept that like you could like freely interconnect to anyone over just open source software and protocols and the internet was just like, no way people's heads exploded. Like we're going to like the whole society is going to break down. We're not going to be able to, you know, terrible things are going to happen. Right. And so like the the world of information and communications was that, and then, you know, it sort of upgraded and we're, we're basically like sort of seeing the same kind of thing happening here with, with this like economic infrastructure. Yeah. I think that's basically Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like coming back on the policy side, which is, Getting, you know, if, if you are the government, let's say, or you're representing uh, the interests of people in the country, so Congress, as an example, and you're a congressperson or a senator, and you're looking at this and you're trying to figure out, like, okay, if this is this new economic infrastructure, like, what does that mean for the future development of our economy? What does that mean for the opportunities that this is going to create for households and for firms and things like that? And you know, should I, as a policymaker, be looking at this as this is like super strategic economic infrastructure, the, uh, the U.S. or other countries who are looking at this, like need to like invest in and lead and so on. Is this, does this become an issue of national competitiveness, like to enable the development of this and enable, you know, society writ large to be able to interact with it and actually, you know, kind of do no harm and create a way for for that to take place. Certainly, at least to some extent. And I think that there is like, I think a lot of the answer, a lot, a lot of that question hasn't been answered yet by the world. 
And we're going to have to see how some things turn out. But but here are at least some ways in which I think the answer to that is clearly going to be yes. One of them is, well, okay, you know, we're talking about like the rails, right? And which rails? And, and, and you know, we've been talking about sort of like, like when we've been saying blockchain, I think we've almost just been sort of like assuming without justification that we're talking about like some open decentralized network that is sort of agnostic and but that actually doesn't need to be the case and you know it, it, there are in fact a number of parties that would probably prefer that not be the case and said be a closed network that they themselves control and you can imagine a world where each government does this and um censorship goes rampant and no one can talk to anyone from another country you probably don't want that so there's one part of this which is like supporting open transparent the open internet Right. Just to make sure that the principles of the open internet are preserved in the context of this economic infrastructure. Right? And so I think that's one piece of it. A second piece, though, is when you're talking about open infrastructure, I think a great and terrible part of it, and I think it's net good, but it's not say it's without, it gives people access and choice, right? People can choose, well, do they want to be, which protocol do they want to access on this, right? And again, net, I think that's great. I think it's like if the world citizens got more choice, I think that'd be good, and I think most people think that'd probably be good. But what that means is that it matters which options they have, right? Like what we choose now is going to have long-run impact uh, potentially on what, in practice, what decisions people make here. And I think in one version of the world, you end up with—I mean, let's talk about stable coins, right? That—that that sort of is, is probably the, the 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 clearest example right now. Right now, stable coins and people kind of—it's so true, people forget even that it's true. Stablecoin means US dollar stablecoin. Right now, there basically aren't other stablecoins, but, but that's not the way the world needs to be. You could imagine having uh, stablecoins on anything. Thanks. And Thanks. I think it's yeah. an open question of where that ends up. I think that like, if I were the, you know, the, the Fed here, I'd be thinking like, yeah, I kind of hope the answer is US dollar. Seems like a pretty good answer to me. I kind of hope the answer isn't uh, other currencies. And I don't know, that seems like a real factor to me. And, you know, when you're thinking about what stablecoin policy should be, there's going to be options for people to use. I think it's in a lot of people's interest to think about what they want those options to be. And like, I think stablecoins are awesome in a lot of ways, even if you don't. I think you should be asking yourself hard questions about whether that really means you should be trying to get rid of stablecoins or whether that means that you should be thinking about it mattering which stable coins become the prominent ones yeah clearly like the overlap and we make this point obviously <laughs> a fair amount which is like the overlap of like national competitiveness competitiveness of the dollar this new global economic infrastructure which is going to achieve internet scale in the coming years and and like those will matter a lot will have a huge impact and you know the, i i like to ask question like you know, if you're the U.S. government, what do you, what would you like the currency of the internet to be? <laughs> you know, but I think that the point you were making earlier about sort of just the, the criticality of just ensuring that people can choose what protocols to interact with and that that op openness be is, is sort of paramount and preserved and not, and, and, and that, that, that piece, you know, that's sort of like the air we breathe. And I think we, we all experience that with the internet as a whole. It's just getting, I think people to make that leap that actually, no, that's, that's going to 
need to be the case for your economic infrastructure as well. It's just like that hasn't been the case historically because it's been these regulated database operators uh, that control that. And now we're sort of saying, no, it's the open internet. And it's just hard hard for people yeah. to, to fully get themselves there. Totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Another piece just to ladder off this, which is, you know, relates to this, which is the latent technology potential, this concept of, you know, there's sort of latent aspirations that people have. I've always liked that concept in technology. Like there was a latent aspiration to be able to have like on-demand instant transportation anywhere uh, through a a seamless handheld device, you know, that was in, you know, that was there that could coordinate, you know, work and, and delivery and all this, like, Clearly, that was the latent aspiration we had, but no one was asking for it. No one, you know, in, in 2007, when the iPhone came out, no one was saying, like, I want on-demand drivers that just, like, works, like, seamlessly. Like, and the idea of, of sort of, like, the latent technology capabilities is sort of that when you have these converging technologies and you have these new capabilities that get built, no one can actually predict yet what people are going to do with it. And I think one of the really exciting things about crypto and about public chains and smart contracts is there's latent power to like, just say like a, the dollar itself, like people, you know, oftentimes are saying like, well, what could you use a, you know, what can you use a stable coin for that you can't, you know, do with a traditional dollar, like an ACH money or whatever. Well, there's a lot of answers to that that are really straightforward that you can give. But the ultimate answer that I like to give is like, actually, we don't know because, programmable money has only ever existed for like three years and barely and like programmable dollars on the internet or programmable other currencies on the internet. That's like a completely new thing. And it gets back to this thing. Like there's this infrastructure that's being built and we don't yet know what people are going to do with it. We need optionality for being able to use these protocols because of all the latent potential that's there. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, people throw around programmable money, but like the latent power that exists from that. What do you think people are going to invent yeah. with mobile money that like, what are the problems people can solve? What are the things that people are going to invent, whether it's like in business models or other things, because I think it's helpful to like, just shed a little bit of light on that. So people can get a, gl- a glimmer in their eye of like, you know, what's, you know, how someone going to build the Uber of money. I, that's like a stupid analogy I realized, but like the idea that like, people are going to create things out of this substrate that just haven't been done before. Like play to earn is an example of that to some degree, people are like, okay, this whole new model of earning through playing and so on. But like, what are some things that you see in that kind of context? Yeah, it's super interesting. And of course, part of the answer has to be, I don't know, because the whole point is that (laughs) we don't know and and, and we'll be surprised by by what we find. But but you know, ignoring that for a second and talking about, well, okay, fine. But like, no, seriously, what 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 what, what may happen? I think interoperability is one thing I keep coming back to is this fact that Mm -hmm. we have so many systems today that are just not interoperable with each other. And I think people sort of even forget that that's the case, like, but, but, but he's very much the case. And like, you know, when you look at like, when you look at, right, any two social media networks, for instance, totally not interoperable with each other. When you take a step back, it's sort of insane that like, you know, I'm on Facebook, you're on Twitter, there's no talk to each other it fractures communication if you want to talk to someone in korea good fucking luck like are using cow talk is that how you communicate with your friends right so okay so, so you have sort of that problem which i think is like a real thing and something that that again i think people sort of forget how important that is and so i, I think that's one thing i'd point to i think another thing that i'd point to is 
And this is sort of pointing in the general direction of like banking the unbanked and equitable market access. That I, I think that like, I, I can tell you that until I got into crypto and had to manage a business's bank account for the first time, I had no idea how hard it was. Right. I right. just abstracted that away. It's like, yeah, and then you like do a bank transfer. And then I tried to do them like, oh boy, we're spending five man hours per day trying right. to do bank transfers and failing. And it's like, how can that be how how like our bank is like it's insane? I think I know. people just don't realize how hard it is to send money. And and we abstract it away, right? Like what's how does the average everyday person uh pay for this? Well, it's credit card fees, right? It's like three percent of, of all of their expenses are going to like paper over this. And, and you dig beneath the surface and that's actually just a giant amount of like databases with secure FTP servers and CSV files. Exactly. It's actually like the under the underpinning of all that. It's exactly yeah. right. And it's it's I mean it's sort of crazy. Like it's not it's not how you build a system today. Yeah. And it has real, real consequences for people. And and then you talk about people who are unbanked or underbanked and you listen to their frustrations. And I think it's like really interesting to do this because they're just like not quite what you'd expect if you're sort of not coming. Like if you're sort of fortunate in the way that, that I have been, I, I sort of like forget what types of problems one might have trying right. to bank, right. but they're really serious and they're weird. And like you listen to like, oh God, like that's a problem. Like, I didn't even think about that, but like, yeah, I guess now that you say it, like, sure, you know, like, I don't like managing all the shit that's going on from like, I mean, credit card overdraft payments when everything is lagging and you don't even know if it's going to be an overdraft, right? Because like, I, I don't, I don't know, it's going to be three days. I got to make the payment now. And then later I'll figure out whether I was allowed to, that, that's a little weird, you know? And, and so I think there's like so many ways. Right. People are just getting clobbered in all these ways in some in some, some respects. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's sort of insane. And I think it, it has real costs for the world that, that I think people, I know I, I can at least confidently say that I used to underestimate those costs. And so I think those are like two things I'd point to. Um, remittances is a similar thing. It's like I was talking to a remittance company like, yeah, you know, 20% to transfer money to Nigeria. We're pretty good at it. And I'm like, Jesus, pretty good at this means that your customers are losing 20% of their assets. Yeah, no, it's at, we, we're, we're like seeing so many startups that are building like apps with USDC and Africa and in, in markets and like just trying to trying to make that like fast and, and inexpensive. It's pretty cool. I want to come back to um, a little bit of the theme of, of like, <clears throat> what can people do with this economic infrastructure that we haven't thought of before? And obviously like DeFi itself, is a great example of programmable money. People are basically building protocols that allow people to in interact with money in all these different ways. The other one though, that is obviously, I think fascinating is DAOs and basically corporate forms that exist on chain. And that's an example of programmable money and programmable governance and, and other things as well. And as we like use this framework of like, this is a new economic infrastructure layer of the internet and people are going to are going to build things that just weren't possible before. Like this is essentially like the new multinational, right? It's just like it's a DAO and it exists on the internet. And I'd be interested in your view on, in you know, obviously there's a lot of like experimentation in there and a lot of tooling and things being built. But like, when do these become producers of goods and services? When do these become entities that actually? represent new like real new economic forms that are competitive 
with what we think of as traditional economic forms? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, my guess is that like probably regulation is what that's waiting on. And in particular, right, like let's say you have a DAO, right? And you're like, great, we've got this new, whatever, this new economic unit, right? And, and we're going to do it by a, a DAO. And that's how it's going to make decisions. And then it makes a decision. And that decision is different than what the law would imply. It, like if you instead went to report, the court would say X, the DAO says Y, what happened, right? And I, I think no one really knows exactly what law governs DAOs. And it's like, is this contracts law? And so I think that like, this is one of these things where like, I think it's gonna be hard for it to, to play a huge role in society until we've started to go through that process. And if you want to say like, what's an example of this, right? Well, okay, let's take one. Let's take the DAO, right? Let's go all the way back to the beginning. You know, the thing that I ultimately called the Ethereum Classic Board. And then there's a question of like, well, okay, what happens there? What determines whether or not those transactions are reversed? Is it do you go to a court and ask them to reverse a blockchain transaction? Do you have a vote of one of the networks? If there's a fork, what does that mean? Like, what's a real network? And what does there's lots of interesting questions here. And I don't know what the right answer is, but but I, I think that there's a lot of work to do to resolve a lot of those tensions before I, I think that like people can put a trillion dollars in a DAO and feel like they know what's, what that means. Yeah. It feels like we're going to see more experiments of DAOs trying to produce things. And then people are going to deal with like the, the, just like the, the huge complexity of like, how does the DAO contract? Uh, what does that mean? All of these sort of, you know, forms of commercial law, labor law, like all this sort of stuff that interacts with it. But so I, I kind of agree with the view that like kind of case law in a, in a sense is going to be the laboratory of DAO. It's like, it's just going to like, it's just people are going to be doing things be like, okay, well, what does this mean? And, you know, trying to uh, walk through that. It, but it does strike me that, like, this is one of those spaces where it, there's, like, latent economic and technical potential, and no one really knows what people are going to invent with that. And, you know, it, it may be that, like, there are labor market protocols that get invented that are, are really powerful that businesses can adopt that are pluggable protocols for labor. And that becomes, like, a new building block for commerce on the Internet works or things like that. Cool. I want to change gears and ask you about tokens versus equity and really look at this like through a couple of lenses like equity. You know, you guys are looking at potentially offering equity trading on FTX US, which which is cool. And I know you already do like tokenized equity exists on FTX.com. And but how do you think about the difference between something that's natively a token versus tokenized equity? What do you think the advantages are on either side of that for people who are using these? And uh, yeah, just would love to hear hear your thoughts. So the way I don't know how this is all going to end up, I can tell you how I think about it now, which is I think we're in the very early days of what will become, at least for some period, a situation where tokenized equity is to equity as stable coins are to dollars. That what is tokenized equity? It's a tokenized wrapper on this underlying financial asset. And that, you know, which, like, what are the pros and cons of it? It's the same thing as, as talking about the pros and cons of, of stable coins versus dollars, which is basically like, I think tokenized equity is going to be a lot easier to interface with and going to have a lot of advantages. But at least for a while, it's probably not going to be the actual equity. It's just going to be a proxy for the equity. And so at least for a while, there are going to be times when you need to convert back and forth. 
in order to go between, you know, an ecosystem based on the tokenized version and, and the ecosystem based on the underlying version. But I sort of think there's going to be pressure over time to move more and more towards the tokenized version or more and more systems to move there. Because again, you can ask questions like who holds this asset and get answers in a clear, concise and unambiguous way. Anyone can query that. And I think there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so taking these databases and just making them work on a blockchain yep. you know, and, and, and all the benefits that come from that. I guess the other related question, though, is like a token that exists on a project that's building a protocol and sort of building something in that way. How do you think about the difference between a, a crypto token that exists in its native form versus something like equity from a broader kind of markets perspective? I think it's still to be determined. And, and I think that there's a lot of interesting things there that are going to depend on what the evolution of, of sort of protocol tokens look like. And in particular, I think like the questions this is going to center around are what is the the core shtick with protocol tokens? Are they dividend collectors on chain or are they governance mechanisms at their core? Equity sort of does both traditionally. And I think that to the extent that they end up really interestingly different, I, I think a lot of that's going to look at the governance aspect. I think governance is a lot clearer and easier to execute on chain than through current, current corporate governance mechanisms, especially for like people beyond the five people on the board or whatever, right? When you're talking about, you know, random stakeholders, you know, how can you coordinate between 10,000 stakeholders? The answer is, well, blockchain gives a way to do that and way to have governance go to the stakeholders on chain if you want. I think that's like one big difference. And, and I think that that might end up being a really fundamental part of what makes governance tokens interesting. And so I think that's like going to be a a pretty clear um, distinction. Then the other thing is that you know you can have multiple governance tokens for different different purposes. They can be different in lots of ways. In a way where where you can technically have you know multiple uh, share classes or something, but not the sort of like diversity of way that you can have lots of tokens associated with something. Really hard to operationalize all that. You know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that, and it ties to like why, you know, protocol DAOs, you know, are interesting, right? Because like you could execute on all kinds of social coordination in ways that are really, really hard to do in yeah. traditional corporate. Cool. I, I know we're going to come up on time here, but I want to talk about identity. And, you know, a long time ago, I always felt like, you know, there are a couple, a couple of missing layers on the internet. One of the natural missing layers was money and another missing layer was identity. And there are lots of reasons why, you know, money and identity, which are so related to each other as well, like di didn't really exist on the internet in any kind of protocolized way. But like crypto primitives actually start to make it possible to to solve both. Obviously, we're seeing that solve with money. As you as you look at what's happening in crypto today and crypto finance and DeFi and DAOs and use of NFTs and all these things, how do you think about identity? both real world identity expressed on chain, as well as sort of the multiple forms of identity tokenization that can be utilized with things like NFTs. And what do you think needs to happen with identity to kind of unlock more kind of mainstream use of all this infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the big thing we're missing is on chain identity. And you know, the, the reason for that is that like right now, when you think about identity, right? What you're thinking about is something that only exists in centralized pools. 
right? There's identity on FTX because we're a centralized exchange that can collect KYC information. There's no identity elsewhere. There's pseudonymous things sort of, right? Like you have blockchain addresses, but you can always create new blockchain addresses. And, and so I think that when identity gets on chain, it unlocks a lot of things. And it is not that hard to like, and I was like this thing we've talked about before, right? Like I'll give you a really dumb version of it. And I'm not saying this is the right way to or the best way, but it's like a pretty clear proof that it isn't that hard to do something here, which is just like on a people's FTX account, we can create a button. You click that button, you type in your blockchain address and we, you know, output some comments to the blockchain saying like, we verify that this blockchain address is associated with the KYC2 account on FTX, right? And now all of a sudden, any on-chain protocol can read that. And okay, there's lots of variants on that you can do, but but like I think at its core, like you can have on-chain notices produced by centralized entities that represent or confirm identity. And all of a sudden now, now you can have on-chain applications that interface with identity. So that's one big piece of this. And then the second thing I want to talk about is a little bit of a different aspect of it is like social identity, right? And and you see this with people's like, you know, Twitter feeds, Facebook profiles. You see this with their in-game accomplishments in a video game, right? They're currently all fractured and there's not a coherent sense of someone's identity, right? There's their LinkedIn, there's their Facebook, there's their like, you know, whoever League of Legends page displays their stats. But with, you know, some combination of on-chain identity with NFTs and, and, and other things, right? You can all of a sudden have a blockchain address which starts to, to accumulate various forms of identity from a lot of different sources and everyone can read all of those. And all of a sudden, like identity, it's like, you know, who's Jim? You send them an address and someone pops up in their phone like, oh, wow, I just learned a lot about Jim. And, you know, you want an accomplishment that you had in some digital protocol to become a part of your identity, right? You can just add that, tack that onto your address. And then forevermore, it is in a way any other person or application can see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's privacy nightmares with some of that, but there's also like permissioning and, and models and, you know, this, we're, we're going we're gonna to need like a lot of different crypto addresses to deal with the fact that we deal with all these privacy preferences and yep. stuff as well. Well, as you know, we're optimistic about solving problems in this space and know it's like a huge unlock for a lot of things. Cool. Awesome. Sam, always a pleasure to, uh, to yeah, thank you for the conversation and uh yeah we'll we'll see you really soon. Uh, super excited and uh excited for what hopefully the the industry can become totally Bye.